So kind of an odd talk tonight. I'm going to talk about intense experiences and, and what intense experiences kind of show us about ordinary life. Um, and the reason I'm talking about this primarily is that with my job, I was part of a retreat last week that was an intense experience. Um, for those who don't know, I'm a high school teacher. I teach at a Catholic school. And the Catholics have this this retreat called Kairos, which is um, from a Greek term. The Greeks apparently had two words for time, chronos, which is just general time, and then kairos, meaning an opportune moment, a very, a very particular time. Um, and the Kairos retreat, it just, it's a series of talks and exercises that's brilliantly designed to basically to get adolescents to kind of crack open and be open and vulnerable. And, um, and so it's always a rewarding experience to watch this and facilitate this. Um, you know, by the end, everyone is just full of love and they're crying and, you know, all this. Um, and it's an exhausting experience. Also, we go from early in the morning to late at night and it's just this constant, you know, high level of deep connection day after day after day. And then suddenly you get home and it's all over, you know, um, and just that that sheer drop off from being in that intense experience to suddenly all right alone in my apartment again um, i actually it actually got me curious and I reread an article that I had read years ago of and this might sound like a non sequitur, but an article called "Why Men Love War." This is an article that was originally published in Esquire in the eighties um, and it's it's astonishing because the article is written by a man who, you know, seems to be emotionally intelligent, you know, just a good guy, a thoughtful person. Um, he's reflecting on his experiences in Vietnam decades earlier, you know, but he's, he's married with kids and he has a respectable job and all this. Um, and he's talking about this intense ambivalence and the ambivalence that he had when he was at war and that he still had, that he both hated war and still hates war with all his heart, but at the same time loved it, you know? And and as he pointed out, the the reason why he hated it, that that's very easy to explain, like any rational person would, would hate all, you know, the atrocities and everything else in war, but it was much harder to explain what he loved about it. Um and so I'll just read this this one passage from early in the article. He he talks about he talks about meeting this friend Hires. Hires and he worked side by side in Vietnam, you know, for a couple of years. They were just they had this, you know, life and death kind of dependence on each other. And then Hires went home one day and you know, soon after the author went home, and then he kept on kind of intending to get in touch with him, but it never worked out, and they, they actually wound up running into each other 15 years later at the Vietnam Vet Memorial, you know. But he talks about having a visit to him. Hires loved war, and I, I drove back from Vermont in a blizzard, my children asleep in the back of the car. I had to admit that for all these years, I also had loved it, and more than I knew. I hated war, too. Ask me, ask any man who's been to war about his experience, and chances are we'll say we don't want to talk about it too much, implying that we hated it so much it was terrible that we'd rather leave it buried. 
And it is no mystery why hate war. War is ugly, horrible, evil, and it is reasonable for men to hate all that. But I believe that most men who have been to war would have to admit, if they are honest, that somewhere deep inside themselves they loved it too. Loved it as much as anything that has happened before or since. And how do you explain that to your wife, your children, your parents, or your friends? Mm. You know? And so interested in, you know, what it is about intense experiences that um, that is so compelling. Um, and the first thing I'll point to is that we live in a world that places tremendous priority on safety. And if you if you consider the you know, consider the change from, say, over the past 10,000 years, from human beings before civilization up until now, there's been an incredible increase in sort of the daily experience of safety, you know? And part of that is wonderful. I mean, you know, we're sitting here in this sangha and we're perfectly physically safe, you know? And that allows us to do spiritual work. It allows us to connect authentically, you know, all great. So that's the good part of safety, the not-so-good part about safety is it allows us to get comfortable and allows us to stay comfortable, you know? And when we stay comfortable, sometimes that's the conditions of stagnating, you know? Um, I often think, you know, in, again, 10,000 years ago, people lived in tribes or, you know, small villages or small communities, you know, Say I was living in such a community and something traumatic happened to me. And for whatever reason, I chose not to deal with it. Well, if I chose not to deal with it, essentially, I'd be a pain in the butt to everyone around me. And everyone around me would have high motivation to make sure I got to, you know, whoever it was, the shaman, the wise old woman, you know, whoever it was that dealt with, you know, people who hadn't dealt with their stuff, that kind of thing. You know, now we're really at choice, about whether I deal with my stuff or not. You know, if I want to, I could just not deal with my stuff and be a pain in the butt to everyone in the world, you know? You know, and and we all, you know, mostly we live, you know, how can I say, a larger portion of people live alone now than ever before. I remember reading something about, you know, it's one of the things contributing to the housing crisis currently because so many more adults are living alone now than ever before, you know? We have apartments so we can be apart from each other, you know, this sort of thing. Um, so I want to pick up a, a couple themes from this article, a couple themes that uh, from this article, Why Men Love War, some of which are are applicable to the to the, the retreat I was on also. And one of them has to do with attention. You know, it is absolutely true that, especially in a war like Vietnam, that there were situations where a single lapse of attention could mean the difference between life or death. You know, you had to pay attention as if your life depended on it. And in a different way, that's also true for us. It's also true in everyday life, but it's very different, you know. In other words, the quality of our attention determines the quality of our experience. You know, when I'm very distracted and not very focused, 
I live in a world that is often kind of dull and flat and uninspiring, when my attention is much more sharp and clear, there's, there, the world becomes much more interesting, it, there's much more natural curiosity, and there are moments when my, my attention is particularly sharp and clear that the world almost sparkles, you know? And so it's, the quality of attention very much determines the quality of joy and vitality we experience, you know, and it's, you know, it's really this stark question, do I want to spend my life with tremendous vi- the tremendous vitality that comes with a high degree of attention, or do I want to spend my life, you know, in a flat, dull, boring world, this sort of thing, you know? And the extreme cases, you know, the person who gets to the end of their life having not paid much attention, and they then they're asking themselves, where did my life go, you know? And so, in a way, we have to pay attention as if our life depended on it, but it's funny, it's not the, it's not the immediate direct threat that the person in Vietnam felt. It's a more diffuse threat. It's almost diffuse over the course of our whole life. And we don't respond well to diffuse threats. Like we don't, we don't really know what to do with them, you know? So that, that's just kind of a funny thing. Another aspect has to do with camaraderie. Um, and this was very much an as- aspect, not only in Vietnam, but also on the retreat I was on, just the, the, the high level of attention. Um, and of course, that, you know, to some extent, it was, that was artificial, living with people, you know, from you know, interacting from eight in the morning to like one in the morning kind of thing. Um, how intentional are we about connecting? You know, how intentional are we about seeking out authentic conversation? I mean, obviously, everyone here has chosen to come to this Sangha tonight where we're going to have you know, at least a, a short time of, of authentic conversation, you know, how often do we pursue that? Even in our, in our friendships, in our work relationships, you know, how deep are we going? What are the kinds of risks of vulnerability do we take? You know, how, you know, what kind of risks of authenticity do we take in connecting with others? You know, all good questions to consider. And the the final aspect that I'll point to, and this is this was less true of the the Kairos retreat, but more more prominent in the in the article. Um, the he wrote about these experiences where he was so afraid it was almost as if his his rational mind turned off, and and it woke up to this kind of wildness that didn't care at all about conventional morality, you know. And and unfortunately, warfare that often meant you know atrocities and everything else. Um, but that is a place in us, an, a place of animal wildness that doesn't really care about polite conventional morality, you know. And do we make space for that? Um, discipline is one of the paramitas of the Buddha. It's one of the perfections of the Buddha. But like all the Buddhist disciplines, you know, Buddhism calls itself the middle way, and many of its, many of its virtues are positioned as a kind of medium between extremes. You know? And on the one extreme, 
you know, that pulls us away from discipline would just be lack of discipline, sloppiness, you know, not being able to get my act together, not remembering to act the way I want to act, you know, like that kind of thing. But the other end would be what I'd call neurotic over-control, you know, becoming too tame, you know. I, I think it's safe to say a person who's too tame is not going to achieve enlightenment, you know. And and it's a very interesting question, you know, how tame are you? You know, do you allow for the wildness? And it's not necessarily like running amok with mayhem, you know. In other words, do I, ha- do I am I able to hold a container for my wildness? You know, to honor that. Um, there are these uh, incredible images in Buddhist iconography, for example, it said that Padma Sambhava arrived in Bhutan riding on the back of a tiger, you know, and that's just, that's just such a profound image of the human in sync with the wild. And of course, Padma Sambhava wasn't asking the tiger not to be a tiger, you know, it was fully a tiger and he was fully in sync with it, you know. One one place where our wildness can can find expression in some ways is love, and not only romantic love, but love of all kinds. Um, there was one song during the retreat that talked about God having a wild, <coughs> reckless love. You know, and what would it be to go through the world with a wild, reckless love? You know, for me to love my students with a wild, reckless love. You know, for us to love our friends with a wild, reckless love. So at this point, I'll share the quote sheet. First, I'll share it with the the Zoomies. So at the top, I have the quote from the the article, which was originally an Esquire, um, from Remy de Gourmand. Those men who live with the greatest intensity are often the ones who seem to take the least interest in life. You know, and this idea, you know, sometimes they're the intensity junkies that are almost bored with everyday life. Uh, the poet Mina Loy wrote, There is no time or space, only intensity, and tame things have no immensity. I love that. That extraordinary woman, intense woman, Catherine Mansfield, wrote, The world to me is a dream, and the people in it are sleepers. I have known a few instances of intensity. But that is all. I want to find a world in which these instances are united. Shall they succeed? I scarcely care. What is important is to try and learn to live in relation to everything, not isolated. This isolation is death to me. 
a fascinating one from Krishnamurti. So do not understand the, misunderstand the word passion. It is not an ugly word. It is not a thing you can buy in the marketplace or talk about romantically. It has nothing whatsoever to do with emotion feeling. It is not a respectable thing. It flames up and destroys anything that is false. And we are always so afraid to allow the flame to devour things we hold dear, the things we call important. Wow. Joseph Campbell said quite simply, love is the burning point of life, and since all life is sorrowful, so is love. The psychologist Rollo May wrote, to love means to open ourselves to the negative as well as the positive, to grief, sorrow, disappointment, as well as to joy, fulfillment, and an intensity of consciousness we did not know was possible before. Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh said, Live as intensely as possible. Burn your candle of life from both ends. The poet Alejandra Pizanar wrote simply, The sense of things remains in the intensity of their names. I love that one. The painter Eric Pevernaghi said, Stolen moments create a feeling of enjoyment in our intensive time awareness. The glow and intensity of those instants can guide us through a whole lifetime. They expose a second or third dimension of the daily life and shed an, expound, an expounding light on all the little details we encounter. Anne Rice wrote, Don't bend. Don't water it down. Don't try to make it logical. Don't edit according to the fashion. Rather, follow your most intense obsessions mercilessly. The poet Louise Gluck says, Intense love always leads to mourning. The psychologist Piero Ferrucchi said, Eliminate something superfluous from your life. Break a habit. Do something that makes you feel insecure. Carry out an action with complete attention and intensity as if it were your last. K. Redfield Jameson said, Grief, however, creates a strange sensitivity. The world is too intense to tolerate. A veil, a drink, another anesthetic is required to blot out the ache of what remains. One sees too much and feels it, as Robert Lowell puts it, with one skin layer missing. And that is an astonishing description of grief. Eve Ensler wrote, I finally know the difference between pleasing and loving, obeying and respecting. It has taken me so many years to be okay with being different, with being this alive, this intense. That great soul John O'Donoghue wrote, It often takes a huge crisis or trauma to crack the dead shell that has grown over a more grown ever more solid around us. Painful as that can be, it does resurrect the longing of the neglected soul. It makes it clearance. Again, we see the horizons and feel their attraction. We may winch with vulnerability as we taste the exhilaration of freedom we feel alive. Robert Greene said, the time that leads to mastery is dependent on the intensity of our focus. You know, and it's just a fascinating question. What is the intensity of our focus? Jeanette Winterson said, In the lives of saints, I look for confirmation of excess. 
To them it is not strange to spend nights on a mountain or to forego food. For them the visionary and everyday coincide. Above all, they have no domestic virtues, preferring intensity to comfort. Despite their inhospitable ways, they ferment with unexpected life, like those bleak railway cuttings that host horizontal dandelions. They know there is no passion without pain. Elizabeth Wurzel, who was with us all too short, said, Good and bad are not opposites. They are both just different forms of intensity. Cameron Conaway said, I didn't want anybody seeing my fire until I burned them with it. Something very intimate about that. Lebo Grand wrote, If you're afraid of intensity, the depth of sensuality and passion, you're missing out on new levels. Levels are opportunities to grow and to tap into deeper and more soul-nourishing experiences than most people will ever have in their lifetime. And finally, Anand Patwa said, The questions you ask indicate the curiosity you hold, reveal your thinking patterns, state the intensity of your longing to know, demonstrate your desire and involvement, and determine the quality of the life you live.